Greetings programs, and welcome to the I.O. Tower, a podcast for all things Tron. I'm your host, David Fleming. My fellow conscripts, we have scored. In today's program and the next two installments of the I.O. Tower, my guest is Tron Visual Effects Supervisor Richard Taylor. Richard and his team pioneered the photographic and computer effects techniques that made Tron a visual masterpiece, which has only grown more sublime in the minds of Tron fans nearly 40 years on. Today, we cover Richard's early years, his light show Rainbow Jam that toured with the Grateful Dead, and how happenstance helped Richard land his first job with Robert Abel and Associates, where he pioneered effects techniques such as Candy Apple Neon and made many award-winning commercials, including the 7-Up Bubbles commercials. In parts two and three to air later, we deep dive into Tron and how Richard's foundational work led to the conceptualization and implementation of the effects techniques in Tron. We also talk about the recent traumatic event in Richard's life when he suffered a stroke and how he's recovering from that and going forward creatively. Again, welcome to the I.O. Tower. Thank you, Richard, for joining us today on our first podcast. I wanted to ask you about your early career and your work with Robert Abel and Associates. Could you tell us a little bit about that start? Yes, I can. Uh, So to tell you a little bit about my start and my career in general that led to the work that I did at Tron, I'm actually going to start before Robert Abel. So people who are hearing this interview understand kind of the timeline of the way things evolve in the arts. As a young man, I grew up the son of a career Air Force officer. He was a phenomenal pilot. So we moved around the world while I was growing up. I was born in Texas, and then we lived in New York and in Japan, and then Utah and Alaska, and I graduated from high school in Dayton, Ohio. But I was always around airplanes and cars, and he was a pilot that was in all the aerobatic teams. And so I was always around World War II airplanes. You know, they were flying overhead all the time, and he always had really great cars. And he took me to the salt flats in Utah when I was in grade school, and I saw the streamliners out there blasting across the Bonneville salt flats, those streamlined cars. So I've always been fascinated by the look of things. My mother was a wonderful artist. She could draw and paint and influenced me in the arts. My father was very important in my discipline, but my mother was the one who encouraged my art background. So I took drawing lessons when I was young, and uh, I always kind of had a proclivity to draw, but I loved making model airplanes and model cars, and I loved drawing pictures of them, as many young men did in those days. And that's when Hot Rod Magazine and Drag Racing Magazine and those things were, you know, kind of the periodicals we looked at when we were young, other than comic books, which I also loved. Then when I was in high school, I continued in arts, one of my favorites. Well, I loved plane geometry, and I loved mechanical drawing, where you learn to draw the orthographic view of an object, the top view, the side view, and the front view of something that you're going to actually make. And you use mechanical drawing tools, French curves and compasses and those kinds of things. So yes. I love that. My influence on Tron and on Abel's and so forth, there's a lot of geometry that I created. I have a bachelor's degree from the University of Utah in painting and drawing. I had made films as a student. I had a 16mm Bolex that had variable shutter, and I made films about drag racing and other things. And I did quite well in student film competitions. One of them, Integrator, which was about drag racing, 
<laughs> was in the Genesis Films package that went around the country and the world to colleges and film schools and things. It was a package of films that had films by Ed Amsweller and Pat O'Neill and Scott Bartlett and John Whitney Sr. He was one of the people in those films. And they were synesthetic films, which were films that are not dramatic stories, but they were films that were continuous visual design. Okay. Um, there's a book by a man named Gene Youngblood that documented that period. It's called Expanded Cinema. And the films were called synesthetic films. That means they were not a story. They were just continuous visual imaging. So was synesthetic a way to test out new photographic ideas, technology, as a concept for producing film? Well, all of us who made those kind of films kind of came up with our own techniques. That was an essential part of it, was figuring out kinds of different tricks for the camera or with the camera. One of the things that I started doing very early in those films was making multiple passes, meaning that you shoot an image with the camera, and then you rewind the film and run the same footage through the camera again and add another layer of image, and then you do that as many times as you may want for what you're trying to create. It's a multi-pass photography, and with my 16 millimeter, I was able to do that. When I did the drag racing film, I did layers of dragsters on top of each other. And once you start doing that, you start to realize what part of the film you've exposed and what you haven't. And the part that you haven't exposed is where you can lay the second pass imagery in. So it's a matter of kind of puzzling together the different images. So I would compose the shots so that I knew where the second pass would fill in. And, Very um, interesting. It's a film technique that is still used today, but um, so it's multi-exposures multi-exposure, to a strip of film. One of the main things, and this is very important in this whole story of Tron, was what I created and designed even before I went to Abel's, and that is I had a light show and graphics company called Rainbow Jam. Yes. And I formed that with another fellow named Kenvin Lyman. And what both of us did before we started doing our light show, we both made posters, graphic posters. And this was in the psychedelic era in the, <laughs> the mid-60s, late-60s. Sure. So to make the imagery on those posters, you hand-draw the imagery, and you do layers of elements that fit together. When the images are finally printed with yellow, magenta, cyan, and black, which is the way that color imagery is created in printing, yes. in yes. magazines, and in books. So I did a lot of posters, and because I could really draw both mechanically and by hand, freehand, I created my own designs, as did Rick Griffith or John Van Hasseld or Kelly Mouse or you know uh, Victor Moscoso, people like that. That's how all those psychedelic posters were done, these rock and roll posters. Yeah. Are, so I did a lot of those. And that process of doing that, once you do the drawings, the imagery is put under a copy camera, which is a large camera that shoots down on the artwork and okay. re reduces the imagery that's quite large to a tiny size. Yeah. And the film that you use to do that is called high-con film, or orthographic film which means that the film is entirely opaque black or clear. So high no con stands for high contrast? High contrast, yes. Okay. It's the film process that's a part of how lithographic printing is done. Okay. So when you take imagery with color film in a camera and take that film out with a slide and project it, 
yes, you get all of those colors, but the black is not really opaque black. Ah. When you go to a motion picture theater and you watch a film that's projected, and they project just the black film, that screen isn't really black. You can actually see that there's a, a tone on the screen. So to do what I created at Robert Abel's and for Tron, it was essential that the area where light was not passing through the image was protected and kept totally opaque black. Right. Uh, so that when you projected multiple slides together, they didn't become additive. Ah, additive, and create additive. a brightness. Yes. So the light show, what I realized at one point was that I could do these drawings large, reduce them down to a copy camera to make slides that went into the slide projector that were totally opaque and clear. And then the color was added, putting a filter over the projector or a color wheel. And the imagery could be softened by focus. It could be dimmed. It could be played. And we actually, for Rainbow Jam, what we did is we had 24 slide projectors that projected an image one high by four wide by six levels deep. So we could put six layers together. So what we were doing, in essence, was painting by number with light. So we were doing that, but we were projecting light and putting it together lithographically because the projectors all lined up to each other. So, so a projector a, would, would project into a particular region that corresponded to a number. Yes. And those uh, projectors were controlled by control panels that we designed that we could play the keys to turn the projectors on and off. And my partner and I, so between the two of us, we could control in real time 16 of those projectors. And the others we could put on timers that would make them sequence at a particular rate with a little timing clock. And the projectors that we were controlling by hand went down to a foot pedal for each side. And the foot pedal was a dimmer that we created using silicon-controlled rectifiers. SCRs are the dimmers when you, in your home, you have a switch that has a knob and you can lighten or darken the light. That's a silicon-controlled rectifier that's used to dim the light. And that's what we used to dim the lights and brighten them. So we had a foot pedal that, that were made from volume or wah pedals for guitar. <laughs> right. And we would fade out a pano of four with one foot, hit a microswitch, switch, and it would switch all the slides, and then we could bring the foot back up, and it would fade it back in. So we could cross-dissolve between imagery, and all the imagery that was programmed into the slide projectors was all designed to be a continuous story. Interesting. And, and we had themes, uh, Indian famine, and one that was called Binary Bits, so we had different designs, but all the imagery in each one was designed. We would draw the artwork by hand on the illustration board and lay a mylar overlay over that with registration marks and then draw the next level. And we would make these levels of imagery that we drew to fit together, like yeah. dragon, dragons or geometries or whatever. And they were also designed knowing that we could play those keys and by playing the keys that would animate the imagery. So we can yeah. make things move by the fact that the continuous frames, you know, change position. Interesting. So you had built all this yourself. This wasn't anything that anyone had really done before or could just pick up off the shelf. I mean, this sounds like you took all your projectors and you learned how to use the technology and the pedals and the keys to make these uh, psychedelic animations with uh, 24 projectors mm-hmm. based on the beat of the music, uh, key mm-hmm. presses. Correct. And you're right. It was a one-of-a-kind system. Um, light shows in that era, you know, by the company bands were 
generally liquids on overhead projectors and film loops of 16 millimeter projectors. So the other aspect of our light show was that we had two 16 millimeter projectors and I made films that were projected that fit into the geometries. I'd go out and shoot imagery like time-lapse of flowers and things that would fit into the motif of a particular wall. And the projectors were Kodak motion analyzer 16-millimeter projectors, which are the kind that are used by coaches and things, because you can slow them down, you can stop with a freeze frame, and then you can play them in reverse. So coaches use them to film football practice or games and then go back to analyze the action. So that's the kind of projectors we had, and those two projectors also had a color wheel on them. So the imagery I shot in a lot of different ways. One thing we did is we took some of the slide projectors and projected them on a white sheet stretched like a screen, and I would shoot the film of Kenvin playing the imagery, and then I would rewind and he'd play more, so I could make multiple exposure imagery that was the same imagery of the rest of the wall, yeah. and then and project that into the montage. And we built these little wheels that were passed between the lens and the projection gate that were metal that had routed out of them a circle, a square, a diamond, an oval. So it would mask the motion picture film like high con. So only the part that came through the diamond would fit into a section of the wall that was made for a diamond image to fit in there. So that's what we did, and it was quite successful. We ended up touring with the Grateful Dead in the latter part of 1969. Amazing. We did light shows at the Fillmore in San Francisco. We moved down there. We did light shows at the Fillmore, the Avalon, the Winterland, the Family Dog, and had an agent, and we toured with different bands. So that was Rainbow Jam, and that technique was seen by different people and was part of my application for graduate school, and that's how I ended up getting the Cole Porter Fellowship to USC, which was a full scholarship for graduate students, which allowed me and my wife and our little daughter to move to Los Angeles, and I got my master's degree in photography, and, and I taught printmaking and drawing and so forth at school. What I did when I was there at the USC Film School is they had an Oxbury animation camera. Now, for people who are not familiar with animation, whether it's Disney or Hanna-Barbera or whatever, basically, again, this is all pre-digital. All of this I'm discussing right now is in the analog era. Yes. Because one of the most important things about Tron was Tron was literally the firewall between analog filmmaking and digital filmmaking. So an Oxbury shoots down to a plane called the Platinum, where artwork is laid under a platen, which is a, first of all, the artwork is all on pins, registration pins. So when animators draw, you know, uh, Mickey Mouse, they're drawing on these consecutive sheets of mylar, and they shoot that to do animation tests of the motion of a character doing something. And then eventually, when they're happy with that, they come back and those cells are inked with people who use ink drawing pens and then color paint or cell paint to fill in the areas. Mm-hmm. And just like Rainbow Jam, you can do multiple passes. You can shoot, you know, Mickey walking and then something else in the background that's doing something else is a separate pass by rewinding the film and shooting another pass of cells. Yeah, this oh, reminds no. me a bit of uh, screen printing I do. Uh, the registration marks, the uh, multiple exposures corresponds to multiple inkings and different colors and through different screens. It makes me think of the silk screen as, as uh, a high-con uh, frame, that's, for example. That's, that's exactly what it is. And I did 
I taught uh, serography, or I've done many, many prints, hand-pulled silk screens that registered similar to what you're using, that technique. Mm. It's a technique that's used in multiple forms of art, you know, printing material, printing complex patterns. Yes, it seems like one works with ink and the other works with um, light, photons, I guess. That's right. So when you're using ink, eventually those images that you're creating that are printed for a poster are printed on a litho press. So when you see a poster that has lots of different colors, generally that poster went through the press a multiple of times as the different colors were laid down. That's how magazines are printed. That's how the graphics on boxes are printed. And Which brings so me forth. back to the, um, the idea of, I wanted to ask you about the color wheel. You mentioned that the projectors had color wheels. Mm-hmm. Is this the idea of putting say, a red filter in front of a projector so that it emits red light and then maybe a cyan in front of another or magenta and then you can combine them to create full true colors? Yes. Okay. That's exactly what we're doing. The color wheel adds the color to the black and white image. And then there are ways to soften the image. Well, when we're projecting, there was focus and things. But when you're shooting down with a down shooter, what I realized is that I could take this kind of artwork that I created reduce it down to the size to fit on an animation cell, which is called a 12-field cell, basically 12 inches across. And there is a grid under the camera that's called the field chart, which has north, south, east, and west, so that the camera operator, the camera doesn't just have to stay locked off looking down at the artwork, but the camera can move on the z-axis, or we'll call it zoom in, but it's not a zoom in. You're actually physically moving closer to the art. So to move, the, the camera can move down to the platen as it is or move up yeah. away from Okay. Correct. And so the fields are used to define to the camera operator where the position of the camera is. And also the platen underneath the camera can move north and south and east and west incrementally by hand. So the artwork can move left and right and up and down and rotate and the camera can get closer or farther away. So there you're able to add motion in different forms to the artwork. Backgrounds, for example, in animated films are moving laterally behind the animated character, and that's not drawn frame for frame for it to be moving left and right, but rather there is a drawing of, let's say, some buildings on the street, and then the camera platen moves left to right to make those buildings go by in the background. And you're using a mat, and a mat is an opaque image that holds out an object in the foreground from the background. So if you have Mickey walking along, when you're shooting the background, you have a black mat that is the shape of Mickey laying over the background that holds out that background where you're going to come back and expose the image of Mickey into that ah. matted area. That's a traveling mat because the image of Mickey would be animating as well, so you're changing cells of his motion, but each one of them are entirely opaque black, just holding out the back. I visualize this as Mickey is a completely black mouse, uh, that Mickey is animated from frame to frame, and uh, you may have the background buildings, uh, background scene in one position, and then a particular black Mickey sitting on that, completely opaque. And then the next frame, maybe the buildings advance somewhat to the left, let's say, and then then the next Mickey is taking a bit of a footstep, but he's also still opaque black. And you can come in and expose Mickey onto that inner pass. Is that how that is? Yes. So that black area, that mat of Mickey, that particular part of the film that's in the camera has not been exposed to an image until you come back and make the second pass and expose the animation of Mickey into that area. 
Wow. So that, that's Matic, and that's a very important that's an aspect of what we did in Tron, which I will eventually get to. Yes. So what I did at USC was I realized that if I put a light box under the camera, because the artwork in most animated films by Disney and so forth at that time were top lit, so the artwork is opaque and there are lights shining down on the imagery. But I made a light box that had registration pins on it that I could put under the camera so that I could shoot you know, images that I had made for the light show that registered with each other and do individual passes and uh, put a color filter instead of in front of a projector over the lens mm. and create colors. Now, once you start to get into that world, there are all kinds of variables that are incredibly dynamic. One is you can change the exposure of an individual pass frame to frame, so you can make it pulse or glow, become overexposed or underexposed, so you can make things have pulsing light. Wow. Um, and then there are other forms of filters that you can put on the lens. And I invented all kinds of filters, which were used in Tron as well. First, you can put filters over the actual artwork on the platen, like thin opal plexiglass uh, and or things like that that soften or diffuse the image. Then on the lens, you can put diffusion filters or color filters or star filters or some others that I will get into in a minute when we talk about the actual imagery in Tron that I invented. Scratch filters and different forms of screens and prisms and there's all kinds of things you can put in front of the lens to you know distort or create a particular look to the artwork that you're shooting so when you're shooting with light you have this ability to control the exposures frame to frame so i started experimenting with that there and then when i graduated and i started looking around for work first of all there were films that affected me as a film student and as a just as a filmmaker and one of the ones that was most important in my love of filmmaking was 2001, The Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick's film, because if you see it in a theater on a big screen projected with light, not on a monitor, not on a computer screen, not on a TV, but in a theater where the imagery is projected, so therefore it's made of light and it's big. So there were things in that movie that people had never seen before. And one of the most astounding parts is the travel scene with the pod when he is going into Jupiter. And the astronaut yes, delay, and uh, you're seeing what he's seeing, and you're seeing a technique there that nobody had seen before that was called slip scan. Yes. It created those walls of imagery that came flying by, made of light, and above and below and to the left and right, and that was called slip scan photography. That process was invented by Doug Trumbull and Con Pedersen, and that's the first time anybody had ever seen imagery like that, and it yes. was spectacular. That, I was just fascinated by how it was done. And, I'm not going to try and explain how it's done because it's technically kind of complex, but... Sure. Anyway, I graduated with my master's degree and I needed to find a job in the real world. <laughs> so basically I was looking around for work, carrying my portfolio of posters and films I'd made and people were interested here and there, but I hadn't really been hired yet. So I decided one night I was going to watch television and whatever the most amazing thing I saw there was, whoever created it, I'd go knock on that door. Go big or go home, as they say nowadays. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I saw this slip scan piece for the ABC Sunday night movies that was slip scan. So it was like the Stargate quarter sequence in 2001, uh -huh. but the imagery was the type Sunday night, ABC Sunday night movie. And I asked around who had done it, and some friends of mine said, well, I think it was done by this guy, Robert Abel, 
and I called and made an appointment to apply for work and show my portfolio. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly what I did. I knocked on the door, went in with my portfolio, which was quite extensive, and met with Bob. Now Bob went to UCLA Film School. He was a filmmaker primarily in documentary films. He made Mad Dogs and Englishmen and okay. The Making of the President and some other documentary films. And at the time, the only people that were at Abel's were Bob Abel and Con Pedersen. Okay. Con Pedersen was one of the four special effects directors on 2001, who was a hero of mine. I had no idea he was there, but he's the one who had created the ABC slip scan piece. And oh he, was ex- he was experimenting with circle slip scan and streaking and other things. When I found out that he was there, I was like aghast. Mm-hmm. So he was one of the people that invented, along with Doug Trumbull, that slip scan process that I had seen in 2001. So I was showing Bob Abel my portfolio of posters and graphics in my films, and he loved the stuff. And then he came across a piece that really was incredibly fortunate that I had created, and this is where luck and happenstance and things come together where you're at the right place at the right time. I showed him the stationery for Rainbow Jam, and when I showed him that, he said, stop, stop, where did you get that? And I said, well, what do you mean? It's stationery that I created for my light show Rainbow Jam. And the happenstance was that when Bob got married, Kirsten, and he went to San Francisco. For his honeymoon, he stayed with a guy named Ray Anderson, who had a light show, who was a friend, who had a light show called Holy Sea, and Ray collected posters and graphics. And when Bob got up the morning after they had spent the first night there, he went out and sat down, and there on the desk was the Rainbow Jam stationery. And he wrote a love letter to Kirsten on that stationery, which ended up being the first page in their wedding album. Wow, that's amazing. It was. And I said, why? He said, well, because that's the first page of my wedding album. I told him I had <laughs> asked him where he had gotten it. He told me, I said, well, I know Ray and so forth. So I showed him all this work and he said, you're exactly what we need here. I need, you know, a graphic designer filmmaker to work with Con Pedersen. And I said, Con Pedersen, you mean the Con Pedersen? He says, yes. <laughs> and I was flabbergasted. And, uh, <laughs> He said, look, I would love to hire you, but I really have a very, very limited budget. I said, well, look, I'm a starving artist and I need work, so pretty much anything would be fine. Sure. So he said, how about $100 a week? I said, said, perfect. There you go. Just great. And the next day I came to work and there I met Khan. And they were working with 35 millimeter film. Oh, boy. And not 16 millimeter film. And that alone was like, oh, my God, I'm in heaven. And then they had this animation camera on this horizontal track that Khan was using to do the slip scan and streak photography experiments. So Khan and I became instant friends. Wow. And I showed them this technique that I was developing, this backlit compositing I was doing on the Hawksbury with the artwork that I had created. And they loved it. And so Khan and I started combining the slip scan and streak with my backlit okay. work. The backlit technique ended up, we ended up calling it candy apple neon. So I learned to write exposure sheets, which are what are used by animators to define the exposure per frame and or the layers of artwork that are underneath the camera. And I designed, along with Khan, our own way of doing that, which rolled over into Tron. So the exposure sheets for the film that we shot for Tron were something I had invented at Abel's. Nice. So we started working together and 
one of the first things we did, uh, we started doing the graphics for ABC Television Network, and I did a thing for the ABC Sunday Night Movie that was a combination of split scan and streak photography. Streak photography is the same thing where the camera is moving while the shutter is open, yeah. and uh, but you're not moving artwork behind the streak, so you're not putting a texture on the streak. It just creates a three-dimensional shape ah. in space. So between Slits and Streak and my Candy Apple, we did the ABC graphics, which were phenomenally successful. And then we created the commercial that just changed everything, and that was the Bubbles commercial, 7-Up Bubbles commercial. Absolutely. Well, that commercial changed television advertising phenomenally. When that commercial went on the air, it just got incredible, incredible reviews. Because at the time that that came on, there were not graphic commercials like that on the air. There were some flying logos and some things. But between that and the ABC graphics we did, we kind of opened a whole new form of visual advertising. Yeah, and, it sounds uh, like you really pioneered all techniques that no one else was working on them or thinking of them. That's, that's correct. And again, it was a result of my light show experience and filmmaking experience and Con Pedersen's techniques. Con also had worked for Disney. Con could do regular character animation. He had worked for Disney. He had worked with Warner Von Braun doing those early How to Go to the Moon and Back films for Disney. And he had worked with Les Novos at Graphic Films doing all those films that were created by Encyclopedia Britannica that we watched in school about, you know, outer space and planets and things. Sukhan wow. had a very diverse background, very talented man, one of my favorite people ever. That's amazing. So I'll just finish by saying the work that we did at Abel's started an entire new trend in advertising. This was the early and mid-70s, and so because they were very light show looking and very graphic, they appealed to the baby boom generation and, you know, the hip movement and all of yeah. that. So they just struck a chord with the audiences out there and it was kind of the Pandora's box of a new form of image making and advertising. So thank you, David, for the opportunity, and I hope we're helping to educate, not just about Tron, but in general about some filmmaking techniques. And as we get into this deeper about the transition from analog to digital, it gets really interesting. Cool. I know you're definitely educating me, and it's quite an honor to talk to you about all this. I could hang on to every word about this. I'm very fascinated. Wonderful, David. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity, and thank you again for your enthusiasm and dedication and love of Tron, the movie. Music by Daft Punk from the Tron Legacy soundtrack. Join us next time as we continue our conversation with Tron visual effects supervisor Richard Taylor. Until then, I'm your host, David Fleming. End of line. Mm-hmm.